Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 Podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's get to this week's episode. Mary Ellen Gurnick grew up a happy child, attending parties, acting in school plays, and taking trips to Disneyland. In high school, she was a popular teenager with dark shoulder-length hair and a pretty smile. Mary married Ronnie Jameson on her 21st birthday, and the couple had a daughter, Nicole. Throughout their marriage, Mary lied, used drugs, and was a compulsive gambler. Eleven years into their marriage, Ronnie lost his job. Mary kicked him out and filed for divorce. In 1979, Mary ran into an old friend, Robert Samuels. Mary and Bob had lived a block apart growing up, and Bob always had a thing for Mary. Now both in their 30s, the couple dated for a year before getting married. Bob became a stepfather to Nicole. The family settled in amongst the ranch-style homes on Bahama Street in Northridge, a neighborhood in Los Angeles. The couple purchased a Subway restaurant for Mary and Nicole to work in. Bob loved photography and became an assistant cameraman and worked on films in Hollywood, such as Heaven Can Wait, Real Genius, Short Circuit, Colors, and Lethal Weapon. Mary was the opposite. She liked to have fun and partied hard. After six years of marriage, Mary was bored. The Los Angeles Times described how, in October 1986, she wrote Bob a Dear John note and left it on the kitchen table, complaining that their marriage had gone stale and that no matter what happens, I will always care for you. We just can't live together. The couple remained friends and agreed on custody, child and spousal support, and their restaurant. But Bob didn't give up on Mary. He still loved her. Over the next two years, he supported her financially and hoped they'd get back together. But Mary Nicole had other plans. While Bob was reading a self-help book titled, How to Save Your Marriage?, Nicole was asking her high school friends where she could find a gun to kill her stepfather. And Mary? Well, she wasn't happy that she stood to only gain $30,000 in a divorce. But if Bob happened to somehow perish, as his widow, she stood to gain almost a half a million dollars. In 1987, she began looking for someone 
to take Bob out and confided in her friend Anne Hambly. In the spring of 1988, Mary met James Bernstein, who was dating her daughter. They'd met at a party, and afterwards James began visiting Nicole at the restaurant. He supplied her with free drugs, and soon the couple were engaged. James carried a business card with the job title, Specialist. Mary hired him and gave him money to arrange a hitman for her husband. James asked his boss if he knew a hitman and was provided with the phone number of Mike Silva. In the fall of 1988, Bob came to the realization that Mary wasn't coming back and visited his divorce attorney looking to make changes to their agreement. Court records reveal that he was now unemployed and wanted to run their restaurant and requested his spousal support be reduced to $1,200 a month. His attorney agreed to drop the paperwork and Bob said he would return to sign it. In November, Dave Navarro, a friend of Nicole's, needed money to prop up his failing business and approached Mary. She offered him a job, one that involved murdering her husband. Dave didn't know what to say. He didn't think she was actually serious. He told her he'd think about it. He told her he'd think about it. But the next day, fate stepped in. Dave was involved in a car accident and took that as a sign. He contacted Mary that night and turned her down. Bob hadn't made it back to his attorneys to sign the papers. He wouldn't get that chance. On December 8th, Mike slipped into Bob's home with a 16-gauge shotgun. Bob was caught off guard in the hallway when he was hit over the head. Then a pillow was placed over his head, and Mike pulled the trigger. The bullet ripped through the back of his skull. Bob was dead at 40. News of the murder traveled quickly, and Mary called her friend Anne to say she had a plan to be the one to find his body. Two days later, Mary phoned James and left a message on his answering machine that she'd be dropping off the family's dog for the weekend. Then she and Nicole stopped by. They toppled a few things and made it appear as there had been a struggle. Then Mary called police. A few weeks later, Nicole phoned Dave to tell him her stepfather was dead. And he said, Why are you calling me? I don't want to know anything. Mary was relieved Bob was gone, but wasn't impressed with the job. Killing someone can be messy, and there was blood all over the carpets in the house. The house that was now hers. 
Mary found $6,000 of Bob's on cash paychecks. She took them and his car. She sold the restaurant for $70,000, refinanced her home for $160,000, and collected over $240,000 in life insurance policies. Mary was finally able to live the extravagant lifestyle she'd always dreamed about. Within a couple months of Bob's murder, she was dating Dean Gruber, a concert promoter. The couple flew to Cancun, Mexico, where a smiling Mary laid on the bed with her head propped up on a pillow and her body covered in $20,000 in $100 bills. Over 13 months, Mary bought a condo in Cancun, a Porsche for coat, and fancy clothes. She threw a birthday party at the country club, rented limousines, took trips to Las Vegas, and partied like it would never end. But with all that cash, Mary didn't bother to pay for a headstone for Bob, and she didn't pay the restaurant bills and defaulted on the mortgage. In February 1989, Nicole introduced Dave to her fiancé, James, and the two men began selling drugs together. One day, James received a call on his pager from Mike and mentioned that he was going to meet the hitman. As Easter rolled around, Mary told Anne that she was worried James was going to tell the police about her involvement in Bob's death. And to keep him quiet, she planned to hire a hitman. Anne introduced her to someone that could get the job done, her boyfriend, Paul Gull. Mary and Paul met numerous times to discuss the details. She told them James was blackmailing her and she was willing to pay to get rid of him. Before she left on a vacation, she called Paul and offered him $5,000 to kill James before she returned. Paul contacted a guy he knew named Daryl Edwards. Meanwhile, on May 1st, 1989, Dave's conscience was bothering him, and he made an anonymous phone call to police and told them what he knew, and pointed the finger at Mary. Based on the information he provided, Police were able to get search warrants for James' apartment and Bob's house. A month later, James told a friend that he regretted Bob's murder, and he told Dave that Mary had paid him and Mike to murder Bob so that she could collect the insurance money. James felt like someone was out to kill him and was constantly looking over his shoulder. He contemplated going to police and confessing. Mary tried to calm James down and had him move in with Anne and Paul so he would feel safe. On June 27th, Paul met up with Daryl at a bar and the two began drinking heavily. They came up with a plan to tell James they were going to a park to rip off some drug dealers and would invite him to come along. 
Around 5 p.m., Paul returned home. A couple hours later, Daryl showed up. As court records reported, James was home when Paul and Daryl started talking about their plan. James wasn't sure he wanted in on it, but he listened. The three men climbed into Mary's car with Paul behind the wheel. On the car's vanity plates were the letters NAST VXN, short for Nasty Vixen. They drove for about 50 minutes and reached an isolated dirt road. When Daryl yelled out, Now! Paul slammed on the brakes. He put the car in park and turned off the headlights. From behind, Daryl wrapped his hands around James' neck and started to choke him. But James was screaming. So Paul reached over and hit him twice on his head to make him stop. Paul went in for another hit, but mistakenly hit Daryl, and he lost his grip. James was quick. He opened the door and jumped out. Paul and Daryl were right behind him. Daryl caught up to James first and took him down. Paul held James' legs while Daryl wrapped his hands around his neck and started to squeeze. James looked at him and asked, Why? Paul responded, You talk too much. Then he let go of his legs and joined Daryl. James kept fighting, but after a few minutes, his body went limp. Paul bent down to see if he could hear his heartbeat. It was silent. James was dead at 27. Paul and Daryl placed James in the back seat, and Daryl drove them to an isolated area in Lockwood Canyon. Paul removed James' monogram belt and his pager and threw them out the window. Daryl stopped the car, and the two men dumped his body over an embankment. When they returned to Anne's, she called Mary in Cancun and used the code phrase they had prearranged, that she had spoken to her sister. This let Mary know that James was dead, and it was safe for her to return home. In July, James's badly decomposed body was discovered. The Ventura County Sheriff's Office joined the police investigation. They found evidence that James had been seeking to collect money from Mary, and that led to his death. On January 26, 1990, Mary and Paul were arrested, while police searched for Daryl. Mary was charged with two counts of murder, soliciting murder, conspiracy, and one count of attempted murder. She was held without bail. The police and media nicknamed Mary the Green Widow for spending her dead husband's estate in record time. 
After only a year, she was nearly broke. All that was left was a little over $30,000. Daryl was located and charged. He and Paul made a deal in which they pled guilty to second-degree murder and received sentences of 15 years to life in exchange for testifying at Mary's trial. Her trial began in March 1994, five years after Bob and James were murdered. Many who had been friends with Mary Nicole were now set to testify against Mary. The deputy district attorney warned the jury, you won't like most of the prosecution witnesses, but there is a difference between liking a person and believing them. And remember that photo Mary's boyfriend Dean took of her laying on a bed draped in cash? The prosecution had the photo enlarged and presented it at trial. They told the jury, This is a real Mary Ellen Samuels, clothed in the blood money of her husband. But the most bizarre part was that during a break in the trial, Dean approached the judge and asked for a court order, giving him exclusive rights to the photo. The judge denied his request. The defense's case was weak. They tried to suggest Mary had been framed by the police after she refused to date a detective involved in her case. Nicole testified that Bob had physically and sexually abused her. And although she testified that she had told friends about it, she never reported it to police, and it could not be substantiated. Mary took the stand and denied having anything to do with the murders. The trial lasted four long months. In the end, it took the jury of five women and seven men 18 days to reach a verdict. Guilty of first-degree murder. Guilty on two counts of conspiracy. And guilty of two counts of solicitation of murder. At the age of 45, Mary was sentenced to death. Mike Silva was never located or charged and is thought to be deceased. Mary's daughter, Nicole, was never charged. However, authorities pointed out that there is no statute of limitations on murder. Mary currently resides on death row at the Central California Women's Facility, but it's not likely she will ever see the death chamber. California carried out its last execution in 2006 and is moving towards dismantling death row and moving its prisoners into the general prison population. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Stephanie Lazarus, a police officer who went on a jealous rage and murdered her ex-boyfriend's wife.
She thought she'd got away with it. But 19 years later, when detectives reopened Sherry Rasmussen's case, they discovered long-forgotten DNA. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.